patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens, episode 118. I'm your host, Sherman Tylosky. As always, thank you all so much for joining me for this week's episode. First of all, big thank you, as always, once again to our Patreon supporters and our subscribers. Um, I really appreciate, as always, all of your support, and we're really, really rocking and rolling through this 2023 batch of episodes. And I also want to, as a reminder, to ask people to subscribe to Friends of Fellow Citizens if you enjoy this episode and our other episodes available on our new podcast website. As I mentioned last month, all of our podcast episodes are now available through the GeorgeWashingtonInstitute.org, which is in the link in the show notes below. This is our brand new home, our brand new hub for this podcast. Uh, so if you want to learn more about George Washington Institute, you can also learn more on that site. We're doing a lot more work to make it so that Friends of Fellow Citizens has that a permanent home there. So once again, I appreciate all of your support as we move through this transition of the podcast to GeorgeWashingtonInstitute.org. Today's guest is Phil Katsaros. Phil Katsaros was appointed a board member of the Nevada Gaming Control Board by Governor Steve Sisolak in April 2019. He recently completed his term on January 28, 2023. Katsaros has over 25 years of gaming industry experience, having served in a variety of positions and leadership roles during that time, including time spent as a regulator with the Nevada Game Control Board. Much of Katsaros' career has been focused on the international and online gaming sectors, where, for example, he led efforts on a number of fronts for IGT's international land-based business during a period of record growth. All told, Katsaros has gaming industry experience in over 70 international markets. Katsaros immediately began his career in the industry with the Nevada Gaming Control Board, where he was first employed as an agent in the Tax and License Division conducting regulatory and financial audits of Nevada licensees. Katsaros later transferred to the Corporate Securities Division, where he was promoted to the position of Senior Agent and later Special Agent. As a special agent, Katsaros was responsible for conducting and overseeing various types of investigative functions, including, for instance, compliance reviews and licensing investigations of current and prospective Nevada licensees. Prior to his gaming career, he was an IT professional in the banking industry. Katsaros earned his Bachelor of Business Administration degree in accounting from Eastern Michigan University. He currently resides in Reno, Nevada with his wife and their two daughters. Apart from his time spent living overseas, he has been a resident of Reno for the last 20 years. If you haven't checked out the previous interview episode about Nevada history with Dr. Green, I highly encourage you to check out that episode first. This is a really great add-on to that episode as we continue to really explore more about Nevada's gaming history and really its role in the United States. All right. Well, well, I'm very excited to have Phil Katsaros onto our program. Phil, thank you so much for coming on our program today. Sherman, thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. Well, I, first of all, thank you so much for the time uh, to speak with us this week. And uh, this is a really good episode, really following up with the previous interview episode about Nevada gaming history. Now we're going to really go into the details of how gaming is regulated in the state of Nevada. So uh, before we get to the, the Gaming Control Board, uh, Phil, tell us a little bit about how you gain interest in the gaming industry. Yeah, I, I, uh, it, it really came to fruition when I was in college and I wanted to get into law enforcement. Um, but even before that, my dad um, was a steel worker for almost 40 years in Detroit. That's where I grew up. 
And uh, he would get laid off regularly in the summer. They do shutdown. A lot of factories do that in the Midwest. And um, he wanted to get out and get take a vacation with the family. There's nine of us in my family. We load up and do the station wagon, just like like the Brady Bunch, and drove across <laughs> to Las Vegas and into Disneyland. Um, so as a kid, I was probably five years old because we only did it twice when I was alive. And uh, and I remember being at Circus Circus. Very that that one sticks out most for me because I remember I had a little little handheld slot machine that you could then pull um, <laughs> when I when I brought it home. That's about all I remember in the bright lights of uh, the big circus uh, clown in front of it. I remember that one quite distinctly. So that's probably where it started. My dad wasn't a gambler, by the way, though. When he'd go to Vegas, he'd just eat the food and, and kind of walk around. He did like to play poker at home, and so we'd do that as a family a lot. When I got into college, I wanted to get into law enforcement. I was thinking about the FBI, and at a certain point, I had a brother uh, that was living in Las Vegas working for the Gaming Control Board as an auditor, and I inquired as to what that was, and then I understood that they had investigative functions as well. And I really got intrigued then. And that's probably really where I first got interested. I started applying to the to get a job there in college. And I ultimately landed one a couple of years after I graduated. And I was all ready to move to Vegas anyway. I was going there no matter what. Uh, but the job ended up landing me in Carson City uh, instead, which is quite north of Las Vegas. Um, and I pretty much resided here ever since I was 98. I moved over abroad for a while as well. Um, but uh, working in the gaming industry, but I always had a residence still here in Reno, Nevada. That's wonderful. I mean, every, it seems like everyone in Nevada has got a, some kind of Vegas story almost, yeah, even if they don't live reside in Vegas. But uh, I'll never forget my first experience in 2021, just amazed at how this oasis can really just pop up because it really is. It's an oasis of neon lights, but it's also an oasis of ideas too. And gaming is certainly one of the, the big ideas and revelations that's really come about. In not just in the state of Nevada, but in the United States. And we'll, we're really, really excited to talk a little bit more about some of those gaming issues in the United States and in the state of Nevada. Uh, but let's talk about the Gaming Control Board for a second, because this agency thing touches the lives of more people than people actually like to realize. Uh, every single visitor that comes across that state line into Nevada is going to be somewhat, you know, if they walk into a casino, there's something that the Nevada Gaming Control Board has in terms of a role. So tell us about what the Nevada Gaming Control Board is and what it does in the state of Nevada. Right. And that's what a lot of what drives people here. It's not just the gaming aspect, but it's the, the tourism and the amenities and everything that we offer in Las Vegas. You mentioned the drive um, over the border and much of that comes from from California, of course. In terms of visitation, I think it's split 50-50, 50 through air, 50 drive. As soon as you cross that California border coming into Vegas, right there on the border is Prim, Nevada, with several casinos right there. <laughs> um, it, so it, it kind of hits you right in the face right away. Same thing when you come in from San Francisco as well. As soon as you get into Reno, you hit Boomtown, and we got some <laughs> casinos right there. So, yeah, straight away. And they're all situated on the borders, up in Wendover as well, Laughlin, and some other places too. So, But to answer your question... The Gaming Control Board is, is, is a critical component of that whole piece of the pie there, right? Um, our, our forefathers, if you will, had, had really good foresight because they envisioned that maybe Nevada could capitalize on tourism and gaming. And gaming in Nevada goes back into the 1870s. Um, and the Gaming Control Board itself, though, was not formulated until 1955. Um, it was under the taxation department at that point. But that's when we formally got established as an agency. And from there, our gaming regulations have continued to build upon itself into what it is right now. And the reason, I think, or certainly it's, it's written in our laws, what the purpose for the Gaming Control Board is. And a lot of that has to do with ensuring integrity around the industry, meaning that individuals who wish to visit Nevada and who wish to gamble in Nevada, they need to have the utmost confidence and assurances that when they're here, they're being treated fairly and it's a safe environment for them. When I say fairly, they're going to go into a casino and they know that whether they're playing a slot machine, whether they're playing a poker game, whether they're playing blackjack or any other game in a casino, that that game is being uh, offered fairly, that that game is being offered to you as per the rules that are written and as per the Gaming Control Board has uh, authorized and tested. Every single product, every single gambling game that's offered to anybody in Nevada 
has to go through a vetting process. And that vetting process is extremely thorough and we don't shortcut anything uh, around that process. In addition to that, not just the game integrity, they need to be assured that the individuals offering the, uh, the, the games and offering the, um, the, uh, the casinos, that they are also um, upstanding citizens. So before the, anybody can get a license in Nevada and it's stated in our law, we have to be assured that they have integrity, honesty, and good character. They have to have good business acumen. So we're there to protect the industry from any bad actors ever entering the industry as well. One thing that also um, gets lost too, and you, when you mentioned um, the, the drive into to Nevada and the visitation there, one thing that I forgot about, um, I always wanna mention, one of our charters as well is to ensure the stability and competitiveness of the industry as well. When we say the stability and competitiveness, what are we talking about? <clears throat> we need to ensure that we have a competitive market here in Nevada. What does that mean? A free market. So anybody, you Sherman, if you want to open a gaming established in Nevada, you can do so. Before you do so, we're going to make sure that you're honest, you have integrity, you have good character, got business acumen, and you got the wherewithal to be able to do it, of course. But if you want it, you can go ahead and do that. And that's part of our charter too. And we, ne we must never forget that as gaming regulators, because what's built Las Vegas, in my mind, I often say a few, few different things. It was capital. And I won't mention where some of the early capital came from, but it was there. It was people that were innovators. They had a vision, this oasis you mentioned. And it was people that were risk takers. And the regulatory environment was set up to allow that to happen. That's a piece that can't be forgotten here. So That's a great overview. I, I think the, the everything you said was interesting is how this this is not just something you can just start right away. It's something that that's kind of built on legacies almost because it takes years to develop trust between private sector and government. It takes years to uh, to develop new regulations and to pass the certainly the legislature has to at the has to play a role as well as the governor, given the you know the way that the state operates when it passes new legislation. Um, there's you know the, probably the people who have to enforce these laws too, as you mentioned, law enforcement. So it seems like there's a lot of different different components. Would you say that the Game Control Board has been, in so many ways, you know, like a patchwork of of different eras? You know, throughout the throughout the time, especially probably ever, especially since uh, game was legalized uh, fully statewide by Governor Bowser in 1931. Sherman, that's a great observation. Um, I don't know if I'd use the word patchwork, but a certain uh, generational evolution or decadal evolution, certainly. Um, if you go from the time of 1955 from the Gaming Control Board when it got enacted, by the way, I can't forget to mention the Nevada Gaming Commission. Um, and if you don't mind, just give me 30 seconds to explain. There are two different, just completely separate, independent entities. The Gaming Control Board, 400 professionals. There are three board members that oversee that agency. Those three board members are elect or, uh, appointed by the governor. They serve four-year terms. But that 400-person agency, that's what's regulating the industry. Separate from that is the Nevada Gaming Commission. It's a five-member panel. Each member, each commissioner is appointed to a four-year term as well by the governor. And they overlap so you don't have five going out the door at the same time. But they're the check and balance to the system. And they primarily serve in that overseer, overseer role on sort of on appeals. Uh, they sort of serve in a, a judicial sort of uh, capacity. But they're the final say on certain instances. So if somebody wants a license, they go through the Gaming Control Board. We then recommend to the commission what they should do. But they're that final say in that process. So certain things they have the final say, certain things the Gaming Control Board does. And, and, and in that regard, it's, 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 sort of, it's a synergistic type of, of process, but we are completely independent. Um, but back to your, your question in terms of the evolution of our gaming laws, it's absolutely like that. And that's a great observation. You'll see over time throughout history when we've made jumps. Now I'm going to jump from the 50s and 60s all the way to the late 80s. Up until that time, if you wanted to own a casino, even uh, if you even had 1% ownership, one share of ownership, of, of, and maybe you were 0.0001%, you would have had to obtain a license. Today's day, that doesn't necessarily um, allow for true investment. While we had the risk takers and innovators and capital of the day back then, 
that would have left out all the capital from any private equity, from any publicly traded corporations that are traded on the, the uh, New York Stock Exchange today and anywhere else. So we've had an evolution. At the end of the 80s, we then um, had a change in our regulations that allowed for that flow of capital to come in, most primarily at that point, which were publicly traded corporations. Moving on, we then had another evolution where we allowed for institutional type investors to come in. And it all came down to what do we need to regulate? We need to regulate for the times and for the future. We're not regulating for the past here anymore. And, and that kind of dovetails into where we're going as an industry as well, which is we don't know, we no longer have the same concerns that we used to have. We need to look to the future. So that was a great evolution with allowing capital investment to come into Nevada. And if you see from the time that the Mirage Casino was built, and I think it was 89, I get my years kind of, but right around that era, that's when you saw the new rebirth of the Las Vegas Strip. And that's when you saw it really go into hyperdrive to where we're at today. And you see up until probably 2007, it was just growth. We had a little bit of a recession there, the Great Recession. Then after that, pick back up again. And it's really just been a strong march towards growth within Nevada and Las Vegas in particular since then. That's incredible. I mean, uh, we certainly will miss the Mirage a lot. Uh, it's it's going to be a bittersweet uh, goodbye. Although they they changed the name officially already to Hard Rock, but yeah. uh, but everyone's thinking about the volcano. I know that everyone's going to be thinking about the volcano and kind of it's it's almost like a symbol symbolic element of both the Mirage and I guess the intensive heat that can uh, that can dominate Las Vegas. It's kind of a weird symbol, but I guess to use that volcanic. Uh, metaphor there when it comes to the explosion it comes to the explosion and growth uh, let's talk a little bit more about that growth in the gaming industry in nevada um, what are some things that you find particularly interesting when it comes to how gaming has grown so much in nevada even despite the fact that other states have legalized gambling in some way now the different types vary a lot right like california you can only have tribal casinos but you can't have commercial and horse racing and all that um what, what can you tell us about the growth of gaming in nevada and in the united states even when other states have legalized gambling obviously besides nevada i could talk about this all day long but i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna harken back to your last question on the evolution of our regulations and tie it into that direct question so one thing that changed over time was at a certain point, it was really only Nevada. New Jersey got into the game in the late 70s. I think Resorts World opened in 1977 or 78. But up until that time, it was just a Nevada only sort of market, if you will. Um, and we had a law on the books or a regulation um, that said, if you're a Nevada licensee, you can only do business here. If you want to do business outside, which we called foreign gaming, literally foreign gaming, outside of Nevada is foreign. Uh, you had to get approval from the gaming control board and or commission at the time. You had to get approval to do business out of Nevada if you're going to do gaming. That's how we've evolved because at the time, I think, and I, I've been told this and I, I believe it to be so, there was a, a risk or a fear that if we had a snowball effect out there of gaming elsewhere, it would therefore harm Nevada. We obviously know that not to be the case, right? That has not happened. It's been nothing but probably a multiplier effect for Nevada because, and I don't want to be um, sound um, too overzealous about Nevada, but at a certain point, if you do gamble, you want to get to Vegas um, to see what it's like there as well. Right. And there's many different reasons why people come to Vegas. I think eight and 10 people gamble when they come to Vegas, but they don't plan to gamble when they come here. I think there's only about a third that specifically say they're coming to Nevada to gamble. We have all the other beautiful amenities as well. So um, they, of course, avail, avail themselves of that, too. Uh, I forgot the other part of the question, if there was another um, oh, it was just like growth, generally oh, speaking, in regards to, speaking. yes. So it's been on fire lately, too. Before COVID, um, I think if you look, and we look globally, or at least in North America, or just say the United States, we have commercial gaming and we have tribal. So commercial gaming and tribal gaming is ubiquitous now in the United States. I think there are five states that don't have casino gambling now, Right. And only and and three of those states have lotteries, so you can gamble everywhere throughout the United States, except for Hawaii, Utah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, 
And I think one of the states, like Texas, they say there's no casino gambling there. Well, there is a tribal location there or two, and they, uh, but they're class two. And I won't get in the difference between class two and class three, but it's not considered um, actual casino style gaming as you do in the commercial gaming market. But if you look at the spread now, it's everywhere. Cause, uh, the casino market in California, of course, all tribal, as you just mentioned, about 80 casinos, it's massive. Um, and every one of the, I don't say everyone, most of them are a larger scale. They're bigger than the ones in Vegas now. Um, Oklahoma, they, I think they have the biggest one in, in the U.S. If you look at machine count and you look at um, uh, table count, if we look at it that way. Because if we try to measure them economically, those are all proprietary numbers. We don't necessarily have a view into exactly how much these locations are, are making. Um, but it's just spread across the entire country. And uh, for, for Nevada, I think it's, it's, it's helped. I, I will say there at certain point, maybe it won't be certainly when you can't travel, it, it hurts, right? When you couldn't travel across state lines during COVID leading up to leading up to COVID, we were on a strong March, got into COVID. Uh, and at a certain point, everything was shut down nationwide. Then when we came out, all the analysts were out there and I don't have a crystal ball. I don't, I, I didn't know what to think, but they said we were going to, um, suffer most in Nevada because all of the dependency that, that we have on tourism, on conventions, on visitation, whereas the regional casinos, they're not going to be as affected as much because people were going to stay more close by. None of that mattered anymore. The numbers didn't shake out. Nobody had it pegged, right? At least nobody I heard of, including me. I never really pontificated on what it's going to look like other than plan for the worst because as a regulator, we had to plan for that. But if you look at, I think from 2019, because let's just skip over 2020, it's a useless number, to now, we've been on a slow March 2021, eclipse 2019, 2022 year record year. We've now, between tribal gaming and commercial gaming, over $100 billion worth of GGR, gross gaming revenue, which is basically profits from the casino offerings. Um, and we've never reached that. If in 2019, 35% less than that, it's that's amazing growth. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, it's the numbers come, come out every month and we were continuing that streak of, of over a billion dollars in gaming uh, winnings every month as reported by uh, uh, by the, the Game Control Board. And so it's a, it's a remarkable run. And this really leads me, I think, to a bit to going coming back to the state of Nevada, because I think Nevada is such a unique gaming environment um there's um, you know there's mega resorts and other parts you think of like you know foxwoods and connecticut right or you mentioned oklahoma there's one near the border between texas and oklahoma um but there's nothing that, when it comes to gaming you know new jersey kind of, kind of plays a big role too with that atlantic city but i don't think anyone is going to ever dispute of uh, at least for for the meantime that when they think of nevada they, they think of gambling and th I want to ask you now, what do you think makes Nevada's gaming environment unique in terms of the the structure of the economy, but also maybe how the gaming control board kind of fits a bit differently, uh, perhaps with some other. Uh, and I, I think it starts. Oh, sorry. I think it starts from the framework that we talked about that it needs to be a free, open, and competitive market here. It starts there because it then allows the operators to innovate, right, and to take chances. We also have, and I shouldn't. I should never forget this, the lowest tax rate, I think, in the developed world for gaming, right? Everybody wants to tax gaming everywhere. Of course, the, the politicians love that for their budgets. We're at 6.75% uh, in Nevada. That's the top tier. So it graduates up to that. Uh, if you go, uh, I think the next closest would be New Jersey, and they are at a nine and a half let's say for the brick and mortar, they have a higher one for internet. I think they're around 15 and a half to 16. We don't have an internet gaming here as an aside, uh, except for peer to peer poker, but we'll get into that right now. Um, but what makes it different is exactly that. It allows them to innovate and that's what's allowed them to produce these big, beautiful casinos. And the fact that we have a very stable economy in terms of their tax rate here as well, allows them to do that. Now they are strictly regulated. Um, but for the most part, we allow them to innovate where we fall short sometimes is on the technology side. We've got some bottlenecks there that we need to fix um, within Nevada. 
because what we'd want is for suppliers of the technology to come to Nevada first. That used to be the case. And they used to do that for a particular reason. Why? Because we've got the most slot machines. We have the most tables of anywhere else. Well, uh, in, in any market uh, across the United States. Now we're not the only game in town. We haven't evolved on that front as much. Um, and it's because how markets have developed in that We've had a snowball effect, and every time a new market sets up, they set up a new regulation, which is a little bit different than the last. And all of a sudden, you look at the end of the line, and you've got a lot of different frameworks out there. But most of them, in fact, I don't know a single one that allows for a free, open, competitive market. They have limitations on number of licenses. And oftentimes, they'll then say, yeah, we need another two or three. Then they let them do that. But all the while, the operators are looking at it going, how many more competitors am I going to get into this market? Because I've right-sized my property for the, the the player base that I think I'm going to be able to derive. And all of a sudden, I've got 10 more casinos. That's what happened to Atlantic City. They've, they've gotten back to where they were, but they've only been able to get back to a $5 billion market because they've offered for online gaming now. Before, they didn't have casinos right across the street in Pennsylvania. They didn't have any competition right next door in uh, Maryland or in New York, right? Now they do. Well, that's really interesting because uh, when it comes to competition, it, it's it it should be a big factor, right? In terms of what uh, these uh, gaming companies are considering, and the uh, the New Jersey example is a really interesting one because um, it seems like a lot of people would know Atlantic City a few decades past when seem will seem like it was at its prime, uh, but it's declined now. Uh, and, and even though, as you said, there is some online gaming. But it doesn't seem like it's the same anymore. Would you attribute that to uh, some of the uh, decisions that have been made in New Jersey um, to, to the best of your knowledge? To the best of my knowledge, I'd attribute it more to a lot more um, competition in the marketplace. You didn't have the supply of casinos. You did have demand. And demand continues to outpace what we think it's going to be. There's going to be an end to that at some point, right? We're going to plateau and then we'll grow again. It's it's just a natural sort of uh, growth pattern, but I would attribute it most to that. Um, and that's where it would start. It then the next step of that is the operators there didn't invest as they needed to because new operators now have gone into the marketplace. Seminoles as an example, they went into the marketplace at a, into a property that was failing. They've turned that around. Wow. Now they didn't turn it around by simply going in there and flipping on the lights. They had to go in there, assess what needed to be done and they had to inject capital. So it was a combination, I think, of that competition out there. Everybody's going to these other locations and not having a reason to, to go into Nevada. People like the Seminoles and some other operators said, no, we're going we're gonna to reinvest in this, in this marketplace. And what, what sort of major changes have you seen or are particularly significant uh, as you look across the United States when it comes to changes in uh, whether it's uh, legalizing gaming or even just uh, some of the other changes that have been made when it comes to, for example, regulation or enforcement. Uh, what are some things that you think, generally speaking, we should be paying attention to as we look at the broader gaming industry uh, in the United States? So so we've, we've gone from Nevada-only casinos to now uh, a marketplace where there's every state has gaming almost, as I mentioned, right? 45 of them, give or take. Um, but with that, it's not just the, the flourishing of tribal casinos or commercial gaming. We now have other offerings. We have, well, the biggest item right now and on everybody's mind is sports betting. So now you have sports betting and everywhere. The PASPA, the prohibition on sports or, or amateur and professional sports uh, act, uh, I always get the acronym wrong, fell in 2018. And from 2019 thereafter, we've got 36 markets now, I think that actually allow for sports wagering. 25 of them, you can bet via your mobile device, your phones. You're walking around with the ability to gamble in your pocket right now. I want to bet on the Detroit Lions. I always use that as a reference point, which I don't usually. Um, uh, yeah, I can just pick up my phone and do it right now. Um, that's just an enormous change from just a couple of years ago. Now, we did have online gaming starting in New Jersey in 2013-ish. Um, they were the first. We've got six markets now with online gaming. You got New Jersey, you got Michigan, you got Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Delaware, Connecticut. So you got six. I think we're going to plateau with that for a bit. I don't know that we're going to see a lot more in the near term. 
but that's taken 10 years because New Jersey started in 2013. I think we're, we're taking a more cautious approach on online gaming. And I, and I agree with that. Take a very cautious approach um, towards entering into that space on the sports betting, man, it's just been a, a complete slippery slope. 2018 onward, we went from four legalized, four markets that were not prohibited, prohibited by the federal government in allowing sports wagering. So that was Nevada, that was Delaware, that was uh, Montana, and that was Oregon. And Oregon didn't even allow it back then. And you had every other state that couldn't. Um, now we got 36, just like that, in what, four years, three, four years. Yeah. It's amazing. Like you look at the, the, how one decision can just change in the whole industry uh have you ever seen anything like what's happened uh, uh since that decision i have not and i was talking to all the experts in the sports betting on the sports betting side of the aisle because you got a few different sort of um lanes there you got casino you got online land-based casino you got online casino you got sports betting you got lottery everybody i was talking to um well i was saying everybody a couple of them said it's gonna fall that law is gonna fall i said i don't think so uh so i was wrong um but yeah, I was completely, I was not floored by the march that we've seen since the fall of it. I was, that's not surprising because the reality is I can see, you can see all the politicians as soon as the league started supporting it as well, because they really changed their tune overnight, uh, which was, no, this is going to ruin the integrity of our sport. And we can't allow for this, even though we know sports gambling was going on forever, you know, through the, since the Roman ages. Uh, it's not as if it wasn't happening, but for whatever reason, they, they, obviously we're opposing it um but once they jumped in all the states are jumping in we're going to see the rest of them fall too at some point there's no reason um not to um it's 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 a natural evolution on that front <laughs> yeah i didn't think the law is going to fall luckily i didn't bet big on that uh, <laughs> i would have bigger you know, losses <laughs> one, one other thing i wanted to mention too which is what we've seen and it's a phenomenon now which is outside of all those things we just mentioned there's the street markets that are building up now. And I'll use Georgia as, as a flashpoint. They started to have um, uh, individuals that were placing machines into their market companies, not necessarily the licensed manufacturers that you would see prominently throughout tribal commercial gaming throughout the U.S. and the world. But it was all these other types of manufacturers that saw that there was an opening within the laws there and started placing these machines in there and they were referred to as gray market at a certain point but they got so many of them into the marketplace um and they're not traditional slot machines they function there's a minor difference in how they function but then nevertheless there is a difference there and they got so much critical mass of it the state just said okay these aren't gray market anymore we're going to legalize it and we're going to get some money out of it in tax revenues that's what I'm starting to see now is that's going to happen more. The state's going to have to decide we're either going to clamp down on these machines, either through the laws that we have on the books right now, or we're going to write new laws that um, prohibit them, or we're going to embrace them and tax them. And we're going to see that more and more and more. Fascinating. I mean, it's just, uh, it seems like, like every state's getting into this business, but as we kind of alluded to, it's Nevada has so much of that experience and it's like, it's so, it's such an invaluable thing. Not everything went well, but you, you, you learn so much from the things that you probably didn't do well. And, uh, I was certain, I'm not sure if the mob would be learning lessons now looking back, but <laughs> <laughs> leper can't change its spots generally. <laughs> but, well said. Uh, um, great. Well, let's move on a bit into the enforcement element, uh, kind of really going back to the, the game control board here. Uh, cause I always found this fascinating too, which is like, how do you, you know, you can write as many laws as you can, but the enforcement of it, I think is going to, is going to matter when it comes to when people go about their business and say, okay, well you have great, you have all these laws, but where's it being enforced? And I want to ask you a bit more about how how the Gaming Control Board enforces these gambling laws. So, in, in uh, but I want to kind of tailor more towards uh, a lot of the issues that people associate with gambling. Uh, you know, just from perceptions and from wherever people have a, a per perspective on gambling, which is on things like gambling addiction and mm -hmm. and others related issues. Can you go a bit more into? what the role of game and control board is when it comes to balancing both ensuring that you have uh, companies that are complying with regulations, but also making sure that uh, these companies are 
not putting the public at risk when it comes to health and safety. Yeah. So our our enforcement mechanism of our industry in Nevada really starts at the gates. So the gatekeepers, the investigations division. So let me start off with our framework or how we're structured. Um, the Gaming Control Board has six different divisions. We have an operational division, meaning the division that really makes the Gaming Control Board operate, HR, uh, budgetary matters, legislative matters, et cetera. They're kind of at the center of the, the operations or the center of the, the wheel, if you will. In terms of then regulating the market, we have investigations division, we have an enforcement division, we have a technology division, and then we have an audit and tax and license division. The, the, the gatekeepers are that investigation division, which hopefully will weed out any bad actors. So anybody who's looking to, to really take advantage or do our state or industry harm. We don't have any criminals here. We don't have any people that are, don't have good character, honesty, integrity. So we weed them out on the front end, right? Everything, nothing's foolproof, but we know they're not criminals, right? <laughs> There's a lot of subjectivity in determining whether somebody really is, you know, is being honest or not. Nevertheless, we've got a great base of operators that can only be in Nevada. Great. Now, from there, we ensure that the technology, the games that are offered, the only ones that they can offer are legit. They're not going to cheat people. Patrons need to have utter 100% confidence in integrity of the games that are being offered. So public confidence right there. That's done on the technology and gaming front. Um, the audit and technology, the audit and, and taxation uh, or tax and license division I'll talk about last. Enforcement, that's the key piece for the operational enforcement of the gaming industry. That division um, uh, has 70 sworn peace officers, which means they are law enforcement, badge carrying, gun carrying officers of the law. They are a 24-7 operation, and they do an amazing job. Um, chief Torgerson is the, the new chief. Congratulations to her, by the way. She got promoted here about six months ago, five months ago. Uh, she's been in the industry 25 years, so she knows it inside and out. And her team that she has underneath her that's been built up over time, the prior chief was James Taylor. They built a great team there. They are that um, uh, missing that piece of the puzzle that ensures Gaming is operating as required in Nevada. We have people, we have law enforcement officers from the enforcement division in and out of casinos every day. Sometimes they're plain clothes too. So you won't know that they're there. They're observing. They're making sure dealers are operating properly, paying out properly. They'll go do card counts, meaning they'll, they'll pull a shoe, um, a deck of cards from a shoe, make sure they've got, um, the, the proper amount of cards in there. They will sit in the pit and watch gaming activities happen. They are also there in case there's a, a dispute with a patron. So if a patron says, hey, wait a minute, I got cheated here. They can always go to the gaming control board. Part of our process is the casino needs to advise that patron. If you don't feel like we're treating you properly here, you feel like you've been cheated, at a certain point, they have to notify us. I think if the dispute is at $500 or more. So we got very specific processes in place. They also do undercover work as well. Um, it was really important in the day where we have illegal bookies, and we still do have illegal bookies around the U.S., and we could talk about that, which is interesting, <laughs> why we have illegal bookies still. But they do in, uh, investigations. Um, we have special operations as well. There's still cheats out there constantly, and so we're looking to safeguard the assets of the casino, but mostly for the state because the casino needs to safeguard their own assets. <laughs> um, but that's that key piece there. Um, the other two divisions, um, they are the audit division that, and the tax and license division. They're there to ensure that the state gets their, their taxes uh, primarily. But they also are there to ensure that the operational or the internal controls that we uh, impose upon the casinos themselves are being followed. So there are a set of rules that casinos must follow. We basically say these 500 things need to be done. We don't tell you how to do it, but these have to be done. And if you're not doing it, we're going to sanction you. And at the end of it, part of our enforcement is that we always have the ability to send a violation letter, which is kind of like a finger wag, but then we can up the ante and it goes all the way up to license revocation. In between that are some sizable fines that can be levied too. Once you get to the, the, the fining a casino, it then becomes public as well. So that becomes public record. 
Um, and so nobody wants that, but we won't shy away from taking the action that we need. We've got complete independence. We're independent of the Nevada Gaming Commission. We're independent of the industry, of course. We're independent of the governor's office, even though we fall under the executive branch. That independence is really important as well. But it's good to have that, you know, that other check and balance over there watching us to making sure we're doing our jobs properly, too. So, yes, I'm, the founders would agree, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's 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 an amazing rundown. I wish uh, I, I wish in, in school, maybe at a UNR, UNLV, that they would kind of give like an intro to into the gambling a, a gambling policy in Nevada 101. Uh, that's something they I have. Would, I would they take, have classes take. for that for sure, uh, but yeah, you'd probably have to enroll in those specifically. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, no, no free classes yet available. <laughs> uh, great. Well, let's get into uh, in some of the. How about the illegal bookies? Uh, that's always a. Uh, I'm sure it was always a fun conversation to strike with with a visitor. To, uh, well, to what they would presume. <laughs> well, and it, it's not just the Nevada thing. Frankly, I, I don't know that we have a lot here now. Um, I haven't heard of any, frankly, in a while. There used to be um, more prominent, but I'm not going to say they don't exist. I guess I'm just curious in the markets that have gambling now that allow you to bet from your phone, why people would still avail themselves of an illegal bookie. Now, I will say, growing up in Detroit, I gambled when I was a, a kid, underage, you know, but you go through a conduit and you do some limited amounts, $5 bets here and there, but you knew of people who you could bet with. Okay. It was omnipresent and it, it's like that everywhere. However, you've got legal markets now. Why are people still going to them? And I, and I think back at the time, and I think a big thing is a convenience, although mobile phones, very convenient. B you trust that bookie, but, Oh, and then there's going to be the other people, which would have been out of my wheelhouse with people that have a lot of money. They don't want the government to see it. They want to hide their taxes. They don't want their spouse to see it. Maybe. Right. You don't want to get a a, a, um, a statement from a casino on your gambling, but also credit. And that's a big one. And that's a big piece. With your bookie, you'd call it in. With casinos, you can't call it in. You've got to front the money. So credit is a big one. And I, I just wanted to put that out there because that's where if anybody ever thought about why are there illegal bookies? I think credit is the missing piece there. So. It flies in the face of responsible gambling, though. So if you you did mention responsible gambling here just a second ago, and most states, every state almost that has commercial gaming, I would say everybody does, has some level of responsible gambling controls. If they don't, they're irresponsible. Okay. Um, We have controls in Nevada. Every market has its own culture, though, its own DNA and different approach to it. That's one area of, of, I, I preach about harmonization sometimes within industry. That's one where it's going to be difficult to really harmonize across different markets for the brick and mortar world. If we look at online, different story. That should be very easily harmonized, uh, frankly. So, mm, very true. And when it comes to the issues of problem gambling and whatnot, it's it's a, I think it's a very tough line to walk because on the one hand, you want to ensure that the casinos are complying with the laws that they can continue doing their business as laws as legal. But at the same time, to, to what extent can you uh, can you go against someone's will to to gamble? Uh, generally, just philosophically, generally speaking, how, how would how would a state approach these kinds of issues of balancing, basically, essentially balancing safety and and some level of personal freedom? Man, that is a tough juggling act, and I'll, I'll go even mm-hmm. further be, beyond states. How would states handle it? And and again, I'll go back to it is a there is different cultures and different DNAs within states, within regions, within countries. If you look at some countries like the UK, for instance, or maybe Australia, I could point to Belgium. I can point to a bunch of other ones where they've done it a little differently. Um, But if we talk about true responsible gambling type measures, I'd say Australia probably has been at the forefront decades ago, but they would approach it differently than we ever would here, as well as the UK. The UK has suggested almost going to the point of means testing, meaning does the person have the amount of money to to be able to gamble, right? So for an operator to try to gauge whether or not Sherman has the means, and if he does, to what extent, and if so, how shall we limit him? That's not something we're doing over here in my lifetime, I don't think. You're a lot younger than I. Maybe in yours, I would doubt it. You know, to go to means <laughs> testing, to go to that extent. So, But to bring it back home to the USA, 
Uh, I think a lot of states, what they're doing is looking what other neighboring states and other ones across the U.S. are doing. And that's appropriate. And that's smart. How can we tackle this? Because we have the freedom here to choose for ourselves. I don't want the government choosing for me. And some of it starts there. In Nevada, we have um, imposed upon the operators to allow for um, self-selectable limits. Once you go to the government, imposed limits, that's in a whole nother realm, I would say. But here, we certainly have to be cognizant that we need to have messaging out there. There needs to be public awareness for it. There needs to be um, awareness, awareness, meaning we need to be able to advertise that there is help out there. There's a hotline number. Here's a website. Oh, and by the way, there's investment from the state, the states that's authorized gambling to take place. That state has an obligation to then look after people who then become, I, I don't want to use that word. I don't even say it, who have then become addicted perhaps, or have grown to have a problem with it. The state needs to have some sort of be a backstop there because they're authorizing this to happen. So guys, we need to then dedicate some of those hard-earned dollars that the state rightly so is collecting as taxes to fund its government to also set aside and fund that. And that's where you get into differences too. Who's funding at what levels? And that gets above beyond what the regulatory bodies do. That gets into the, the, the politicians to decide what amounts do we need? right here. So they, they need to be looking at that. Very, very important issue. And, and something that I think states, especially the ones that are new to, uh, to gaming, uh, this is, I think it's going to be a big challenge because they're going to, it's a, when everything, anyone who goes into something new is going to have to learn a lot of different things, the expertise, building expertise, you can't do that in a day. And this is, a, I think it's a really good transition actually to uh, really, just some of the look at more at some of the trends um, and just areas of optimism and concern that you may have about some of the this expansion of legalized gambling. One of the things that I read recently was, was I think it was a New York Times article about how when it comes to enforcement, you mentioned the essentially really the gold standard of enforcement. You mentioned the the team that team of the Game Control Board. I, I read in certain cases in that article where uh, some people are really. Uh, or I should say some companies who are not following the rules and are allowing a lot of crazy things to happen uh, are getting just a slap on the wrist uh, for, for their actions. What sort of consequences do you think that that sort of culture has when it comes to legalizing a, a new industry? In other words, um, what, what do you make of this, uh, of this lack of, of discipline that you that you might find in certain other states, and it doesn't have to be like specific states because it kind of probably is everywhere to some degree. But uh, just what what can you say, especially from the Nevada standpoint? We like to say that we're the best at, at doing this sort of work. So, uh, any thoughts about that? Well, I, I don't like to ever be pretentious. Some people do throw out the gold standard. I don't like to do that. We do a lot of things mm -hmm. great. We do some things not so great, and we got to improve for sure. And I'm always mm -hmm. cognizant of that. But um, but and I won't call it any other states or jurisdictions either. But there are some some things that trouble me out there. And lack of discipline and enforcement is is something that we don't tolerate here in Nevada, at least. What that starts to fester is an unlevel playing field as well, too. We have to have even playing fields. We have to treat every licensee the same. Every situation we like to treat the same, but there's always nuances. I will say the fines that we've issued in Nevada, you're going to see are probably less um, um, uh, lesser amounts than what you're going to see in some of the other markets. They have fewer licensees. Um, I, I do like to think that we pride ourselves on being business friendly in most regards. Again, I point back to the log jams and the issues that we have in technology coming into Nevada. That's a big problem for us. But we are very business friendly here in that we have a competitive, open and free market. Regulators that are not coming down on, on their licensees, though, they're setting themselves up for failure. They're setting themselves up for, at some point, the, the, you know, the top just being blown off, right? There's going to be, where in Nevada, we slowly, we methodically will issue fines, violations over time, and it'll continue, it'll build up too. So we have a progressive level of discipline. 
But there needs to be mindfulness and, and watching what's happening or what these licensees are doing. And one example that just came to mind when you mentioned um, this question, when you brought this up, is on promos. There's all these different promos out there on sports betting now trying to lure, not lure, to, to attract customers to their sports betting product. And yeah, they're less than clear. I, I think uh, there was a term used by a politician and it was like uh, a really uh, bad adjective. I don't think it goes that, it, it doesn't lure them over to them. Like, But it, it is definitely less than clear in the promos that they're offering. We have a law in the books that's very clear that says you can't um, uh, have any false advertisements. We could very easily, if they were doing that within our jurisdiction, go in there and say, this is not clear. You need to fix it. If they don't fix it, we'll straight away go to fine. That's, it's that simple. So we have a very quick process in that regard. We, we, we will sit down with the licensee when we see something. So it doesn't get broadcast out in public. We say, fix this because there's sometimes reasonable interpretations of the law and they maybe have taken something outside of, you know, uh, you know, they may have taken a differing opinion on what the regulation says. And we, we could say, you know what, that was reasonable. But if it was something drastic and they're trying to um, illegally advertise something like we have the loosest slots on the strip, they will get a letter immediately. Nobody even does that anymore. And if they do, let me know because we can send it over to them. And they'll take action. You can't do it. It has to be verifiable. You can't say things like that. You can't offer somebody a free thousand dollar bet and then and then in fine print or no print, say, well, yeah, it's a thousand dollars, but you have to make a hundred consecutive bets in order to get to that. Uh, uh, that wouldn't fly. So regulators do need to have a hands-on approach. Um, we don't have a huge staff, but we do keep our ears to the ground. Um, uh, thankfully, and everybody wants to follow the letter of the law here too, because again, on the front end, we vetted them so that we already know we're dealing with a good batch of good apples here. Very true. And it's, it's a big job. I think the, I think what some what big takeaway I've gotten from my time reading about uh, Nevada's economy and about the gaming industry is that it's, it's a, it's a tough world in the sense that there's a lot of responsibilities on the books there. And I think the things that you've brought up, you know, from the enforcement side to uh, make, to ensure that you have that level playing field. Uh, Cause I think those things, if, especially when it comes to the public trust element, of when you have people start now start doubting that if they're if it if a machine's going to be fair or if a casino's going to be fair, it's not only going to be bad for for the casino, but I think it's going to be bad for perhaps for visitation because word word of mouth can really spread, or maybe or just people who just say, you know what, I don't I don't know about this this state and their regulations, um, and so I, I think. I think what the gaming control board and what the other states have to do, I think, is a it's a monumental task right in front of you. That one of our laws says, um, and, and it specifically states, you shall not bring disrepute upon the state of Nevada. And we have a regulation. It's called Regulation 5011. It's called unsuitable method of operation, which is just a catch-all. And if somebody was illegally advertising something, for instance, or if somebody manhandled a patron, which we felt was too aggressive, you know, the security guard or what happened, what have you, we'd say that's a very clear 5011. Uh, unsuitable method of operation. Um, you brought disrepute upon the state of Nevada, and, and and basically they need to have a consequence. There always needs to be a consequence for an infraction or a violation or some sort of bad action by a casino. And that's and we pride ourselves on on that because it goes back to the public trust. Those folks need to un, be insured and have the utmost confidence, hundred percent confidence, when they're coming here, they're going to have a safe, friendly environment. And yeah, so it seems like for most people, it's like if it's too good to be true, it's probably probably not something to to go if, if they were to kind of be sold this idea of like oh free free lifetime buffets. I'm like uh, yeah. as much as we want that in a in a perfect world, don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic, Phil. This is this is fantastic. Uh, uh, just amazing info here that you're, you're giving us i want to now go more into just in our last part before we get to our reflection phase here which is more about some of the gaming policy areas that you think should be prioritized by local and state leaders i mean there's so many of them but if you can narrow down to a few that you think we should be looking out for you mentioned online gaming i think that's going to be a, a very very weird world but very important world to to, to recall one of the things that i just want to point out is just my opinion but i i i think anyone is 
ever been to inside a casino, whether in Vegas or even Reno, we got some great casinos there. Um, everyone remembers that moment when you walk in and you see the, you know, the, the glistening, glistening chandelier or the, the lights flashing and the, the buffets. And I'm just saying that regardless of whichever casino that is, that's a whole immersive experience. That's very different from doing it just on your phone. Um, and I, I wonder if, you know, obviously when it comes to the legalization, I'm not sure they're, they're going to write the law exactly like that, but uh, it does definitely does seem that people not only go, as you mentioned earlier, not just for the gambling, but really for the experience. And just by being there with the, just even taking a selfie is perhaps a big deal for a lot of people. So anyway, what policy area do you think we should be focusing on as we move forward with that next generation of gaming policy? So I'll answer that from two different perspectives. From the gaming control board, there are probably two big areas, maybe three, um, um, that they need to focus on. Um, A couple of things that I was working on before I left, and I think they're most important for us as a regulator. we got to keep carrying on with our mission. We got to keep updating our regulations, um, right-sizing them for the times, updating them for the times. And one of those things is on licensing. We're still licensing individuals and companies as we were doing 30, 40 years ago. There's no need to do that anymore, particularly on the supply side. So there are countless hundreds, maybe, I don't want to say thousands, but at least hundreds of manufacturers and suppliers out there all over the world. They've been vetted. Some of them are in Nevada, some of them are not. They want to bring technology in Nevada, the ones that are not here. We suffer as a marketplace. We suffer from a competitive standpoint when we don't allow that technology to come in here. We're not allowing them to come in the front door right away because we have to vet them first. We've got to flip that model, allow the technology to come in here on a temporary basis and then vet them thereafter. It's not going to bring reputational harm into the marketplace of Nevada if we let suppliers come in before they're fully vetted. The technology needs to be vetted, but that company, the reality is they've probably been vetted elsewhere, but even if not, you register them. So they should there should be a mechanism for them to be able to come through the front door within 60 to 90 days, not wait a year, not spend half a million dollars to get licensed in Nevada before they can see if their product can even be properly commercialized in Nevada because that keeps technology out. They look to Nevada almost last now, unless they have a compelling reason. So that would help switch the flip, uh, flip the switch. I put forward a, a, a uh, draft law that's in our legislature right now. I hope it goes through. It will really help the marketplace. So that's the first thing right-sizing, looking to our licensing standards. There's other states that do it right now. California does that, right, with tribals. You can you have to register with each tribal, um, uh, uh, with each tribe in order to supply to them. But from a state level, they allow you to come in straight away registering. New Jersey, from a commercial standpoint, they did that first as well. I think Colorado does it, Michigan does it, Pennsylvania does it. There's no reason we can't do this too here. It makes all the sense in the world. Other other um, tribal markets have done that for a while as well because the state, well, I won't get into that area. <laughs> Second one, harmonization around technology. Again, not only do the technology suppliers um, um, are hesitant to come to Nevada first because of the licensing process. That's not that they're necessarily bad actors. They just don't want to invest the time and money to see whether or not their product's going to work. The technology. We have to have reciprocity. We have to have a better, meaning if it's already been approved elsewhere, we should give it priority to allow it to go into the marketplace quicker and more smoothly. So we have to fix that process. Those are two. The third one I kind of was alluding to is a lottery. When we I say there's five states that don't have a lottery, we don't have a lottery in Nevada. I'm not saying we have to have one, but if we do, a very simple solution to having a lottery was to, would be to establish it within all the casinos. We've got 400 um, outlets, give or take, if we look at that. We could have all those outlets selling lottery tickets. And what could we then do? And that goes to beyond the Nevada Game Control Board. This year, record, 50 million people, I think, visited um, Nevada. We can only import so many people into Nevada. We need to export our brand better. We could do that via a lottery. Powerball is out there, right? That's everywhere outside of the country. We could export our brand outside of Nevada too. It'd be into Las Vegas, Bucks, whatever you call it. Bunch of great, smart, 
um, PR people in Las Vegas and in Reno and around the state, they could figure what that that marketing brand is too. But we could export our brand better and we need to do that. They already said Harry Reid International is, is reaching its capacity. So we can't even fly in more people without expanding that thing. Let's export our brand. And so that's that's where my head is. Fantastic. I mean, certainly I, I always say that I wish that there was more uh, marketing certainly of Reno and Tahoe and Vegas because I think giving more of these options you know, when they come to I mean Vegas is amazing don't get me wrong at least in my, in my view but it would just be it'd be nicest to have people explore more uh, I'd love to go to Great Basin uh, near that border between with uh, Utah and Nevada near Ely uh, there's just so much of Nevada to explore so I get uh, I I fully concur with you and especially in that sense of encouraging people to to uh, to come to Nevada, also just different parts of it too. And to, to really see that whole space and to see the nature. I mean, you, you live in the Reno area. So do I, uh, you, you know, we have amazing wild horses here. This is uh, a, <laughs> it's, it's, we didn't create wild horses, but it's almost like its own attraction there. <laughs> yeah. They're smart though. They know where to go. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, Phil, we've had an amazing discussion about uh, all these different issues. And I think these are very pertinent to Amer- everyday Americans because uh, it's growing a lot and uh, it's it's a part of life that, uh, that people will be accustomed to one way or another. And I'd like to tie it really all in into a reflection based on uh, some of the values of, of George Washington's farewell address. So really kind of looking at patriotism, faith, national unity, education, and fiscal responsibility, civility. Um, just generally speaking, Phil, if you could pick one or more of these values, uh, how would, uh, what, which ones would you pick and how do you think those could relate to a broader conversation about uh, game policy and, and how we move forward as a nation? Well, there's quite a few of them that can tie directly into it. Because gaming and tourism is the economic engine of Nevada, it then supports everything that we can do, including education. And I think everything starts with education. That's not just hyperbole, frankly. That's And it all starts there. So they're intertwined there. Patriotism ties in as well. I'm an American, but I'm also a Nevadan. And so I'm very patriotic <laughs> to be in a Nevadan. And everything I do is always looking at, at least with the game from the lens of the Gaming Control Board, is how can I make Nevada better? Not, not for... Nevada, the the geography, but for the citizenry. How can we make it better for our people? So we can make us more competitive, which will drive economic growth, which will then um, be more fiscally responsible for us, which in turn will allow us to educate our citizenry better. And hopefully it'll bring us uh, better unity as well, right? Um, you know, across the, across the borders and civility. <laughs> Yes, and civility exactly. Yes, I think especially on on t- growing tourism and all that, that should be a bipartisan issue and something that both parties can r- rally behind. Because who who doesn't want more, you know, like Formula One sort of events or Super Bowls? <laughs> Maybe exactly. we framed it that way. Maybe we framed it as a. It's, it's like we work together, we get more Super Bowls uh, to come to <laughs> Las Vegas. Maybe that'll be a better draw. <laughs> I think that's the cards. We're gonna go from zero to one very quickly. Yeah, complete complete growth. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm looking forward. I'm hoping to to uh, volunteer there. That's that's my goal. Uh, to <laughs> take some time off out of out of schooling and head head over there, <laughs> head over there to party to America's party in on the strip. <laughs> Um, well, Phil, again, thank you so much for, for your time. I just want to wrap up with some quick uh, conclusions here. Uh, but first is uh, we really appreciate hearing from you, especially of your perspective. I think you have a very unique perspective on uh, the role of gaming in Nevada and in the United States. Uh, it's something that I think a lot of people probably uh, are not maybe as, as aware, generally speaking, but should know that it's it's a developing um, it's a developing policy across the U.S. And if, if states don't get onto, as you mentioned, developing a culture of discipline, of making sure that people are are competitive, you know, or the the industry is competitive, if we don't get to those standards, that could have real implications on uh, the U.S. as an economy and the way people um, consume uh, in our economy nowadays and in the future. And secondly, uh, I also really appreciate the, the insights that you have about the Game Control Board. And I think 
uh, what it does and its role and how it affects millions of people um, every single day. So uh, I just want to say thank you so much for for coming on our program. And uh, do you have if you have any concluding remarks, uh, feel free to, feel free to use this time to do so. Uh, I guess the only thing I'd uh, add to it is that yeah, gaming is no longer this sort of weird, mysterious thing. That's a Nevada only thing. It, it's everywhere in the United States. It's everywhere around the world. Um, regulators, they do, they do a good job. Um, some do better than others. We're going to try to always be the regulator at the forefront and making sure that Nevada is protected. Its interests are protected. And, uh, and I, and I, that I can assure you. So anybody that comes here, they can always be assured that if anything, uh, if they feel they've ever been, um, mistreated. They got the gaming control board to go to in terms of anything to do with gaming. So, fantastic. Well, Phil, thank you so much again for your time, and once again, we really appreciate uh, all the insight that you've given us today. Thanks, thanks, Sherman. Thank you all so much for listening to this interview with Mr. Phil Katsaros. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure once again to subscribe if you enjoy this episode and check out our other episodes available on our website, georgewashingtoninstitute.org. Enjoy the rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. Mm -hmm.